0: listening to The Coronavirus Diaries, Human Rights in the Age of a Global Pandemic, a series of online conversations with experts hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The Institute is Canada's leading think tank working at the intersection of human rights, conflict, and emerging technologies. As we watch the global pandemic unfold, this series will look at what impacts the coronavirus will have on human rights, geopolitics, and democracy, and what role technology and disinformation will play. Welcome to the Coronavirus Diaries. My name is Marie Lemensch. Today I'm very happy to welcome here uh, Florian Bieber, who is a professor in southeastern European history and politics and the director of, Center for, of the Center for Southeast European Studies at the University of Graz. And you also contribute to foreign policy uh, magazine, which is how I kind of got to know you. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: At the beginning of the pandemic, nationalist and populist leaders and movements seemed completely unable and unprepared to deal with with such a crisis that is both local and global. Why do? You, why is that so?
1: Well, I mean, to some degree, of course, the enemy is not at first a migrant or or somebody different, uh, but it's uh, a disease. So that makes it a lot harder for um, nationalists um, and populists. To kind of blame somebody, um, and the second thing is, of course, that um, many of them have been promoting, you know, non-scientific approaches to politics. I mean, populists are uh, notoriously skeptical about expertise and expert-driven uh, policymaking. I mean, they've been sort of the dominant rhetoric of nationalist populists has been to say, "We don't need experts; we know better. The, the people know better what is needed." Now, of course, this has led to disastrous miscalculations, I and mean, we've seen it both in Britain and the United States, but also elsewhere, like in Brazil, where uh, populist leaders have not taken um, the pandemic seriously and were caught really off guard when they re- when they had to realize that, in fact, their laissez-faire approach in many ways was uh, really not very helpful for... for uh so, their own popularity at the end of the day, because as the risk and the disease became more apparent that it would be uh, threatening the population, you couldn't really just um, ignore its, its threat and you had to listen to experts. So, that was, I think, why the kind of populist stream of politics, uh, at least in many countries around the world, at first was caught a little bit off guard.
0: And we've seen a lot of nationalism growing in Europe, and we've seen a real democratic decline around the world but and that includes in, in, in Europe. how could Europe and perhaps the rest of the world become even less democratic once the pandemic counts down? And how is the current situation kind of exacerbating existing tensions in Europe specifically?
1: Certainly the the pandemic has, to some degree, uh, worsened some pre-existing tensions. I mean, I think what we see is in a moment of crisis, people look at the state uh, and they expect the state to act. And of course, this comes often at the detriment of transnational cooperation. Mm. Citizens and states often behave, behave selfishly, so to speak. So, um governments are seeking to procure medical supplies for their own citizens, often ignoring the needs elsewhere. So, I think we see this really in the last weeks very strongly that there is at least a temptation in the first reflex to be quote unquote selfish in in, in, uh, in their response, and this is of course Uh, creates tensions because uh, different countries feel they're disadvantaged uh, by by one another. We've seen this in Europe a lot that also with the breakdown of the freedom of movement, um, border closures uh, and also the uh, limitations on export and certain goods all of a sudden what was self-evident until a month ago namely a free market with open borders for citizens disappeared within weeks. Now you know there's of course their medical grounds of, of some of those restrictions but some of them are kind of national selfishness you could say and uh, you know it's easy to to say well the, the eu should have done more but in most cases when we're looking at what happened is that the eu as an institution doesn't have the competence mm-hmm. and states when push came to shove uh, acted selfishly and were not willing to really coordinate and to cooperate on these crucial issues this is at least is the first response i mean again down the road i think things might look a little bit different and already now they look different than they did a few weeks ago at the beginning of the pandemic
0: do you think europe will once it op- opens its borders again to you know freedom of movement and goods do you think there'll be more regulations than there used to be do you think some kind of some kind of of, of restrictions will remain in the long term
1: I mean, I think that kind of comes back a little bit to your previous questions about will the countries be more or less democratic uh, or less democratic after the crisis? And I think what we are what we have to be very careful about is that the kind of lots of emergency restrictions we're seeing at the moment are, of course, temporary. And many of them seem without doubt justified. I mean, you know, restrictions on uh, gatherings, on uh, people going out, But I think that what we have to be careful about is several things. First of all, lack of proportionality, that some of these measures are more drastic than they need to be, um, or that they are reinforced in a manner which is disproportionate. So, for example, some countries have instituted prison fines for spreading fake news. Now, that seems very dangerous because who is to determine what is fake news? Mm -hmm. Or other countries have sent police, uh, sent military patrols on the street to reinforce restrictions on movement. Now that strikes me as very dangerous because once you start using the army for domestic purposes, uh, it sends a signal, first of all, that this is a kind of a state of war and also uh, a very kind of militarized understanding of the crisis. Now, I don't think you need to keep pensioners uh, in uh, doors or people in small groups with the use of the army. This seems really disproportionate. So that's the first risk. And the second one is really about the long-term durability of these measures. Now, probably the most radical ones are going to be eased in nearly all countries once the crisis is less uh, kind of dominant. But I'm concerned that some of those measures might just be used uh, much beyond that. I mean, we're looking at tracking of citizens, for example, through mm-hmm. mobile phones, Um, This is something which I think will be very tempting for governments to use uh, even in quote-unquote normal times. So there, I think there's a real risk that some of those restrictions are going to uh, stay with us uh, if not properly checked. And of course, the same goes with uh, border controls uh, in the European Union, that already border controls have gotten more rigid or at least to become more visible uh, after the so-called migration crisis of 2015. But that didn't affect uh, let's say, the privileged uh, citizens of the European Union uh, who could travel freely, but now they are, of course, limited as well. Whether or not we're going to have a quick return to the freedom of movement we're used to, or many, uh, let's say, from more privileged countries are used to, is something which is also far from clear. I mean, down the road probably, but how long this state of exception will take is, is really quite quite um, quite uncertain.
0: Yeah, and we saw this, you know, not only with the Patriot Act in the United States after 9/11, but also in France after the Bataclan attack, um, the state of emergency kind of kept being renewed. And myself, you know, having family in France, I know that whenever I go there now, I see a lot, still a lot of armed, armed military men on 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 the street. So, I mean, that's, I think, what you're saying is it kind of a more long-term, perhaps dangerous that we just get used to seeing this kind of militarized response on the street.
1: Yeah, people get used to it. I mean, this is, I think, I mean, you know, human beings have a great coping mechanism that they find a normality in even extraordinary circumstances. But that coping mechanism can also be dangerous that in times of, um, of crisis, people then accept these measures and then... I get so used to them that uh, no or few people might be uh, really critical about them once they become once you know circumstances return to normal so that we don't even notice when normal begins again i mean in the united states i mean i think your example of 9-11 is perfect for many years um you had you know the the state uh, the uh, TVs had the broadcast where they say the alertness state, where it's, you know, is, is it in red, orange, or green, um, as if in Kansas you have to worry as much as in New York City um, about uh, the, the threat level. But it's this kind of um, securitization which is dangerous because it's not just that it uses... Um, kind of normalize the use of kind of security actors but also because it keeps people in a state of anxiety it kind of says you are living in a state of emergency and states of emergency justify governments of doing all kinds of things you know for example now already in the united states we see that migrants uh, uh, undocumented migrants at the border are sent back without due process so it's easy to do away with certain uh, protections in these times and probably 90% of the population will not be affected, but the risk is that the most vulnerable ones, uh, you know, m- migrants who are not documented or other groups which are more vulnerable become the target then. And the majority might just stand by because, this, with, because they're told that this is just um, the way we have to deal with this extraordinary circumstance in a way in which most citizens might not tolerate those measures in quote unquote normal times.
0: Yeah and before before we go into what is happening specifically in hungary how why do you think that um populist or authoritarian regimes and leaders tend to actually use these crises to crack down even more on civil rights and basic freedoms and um how do they take advantage of of this crisis to actually consolidate power is it a question of of legitimacy or what where where, where is why is the, do they have this reaction
1: well I think you know the the, the authoritarian populist and I think there's a close link between authoritarianism and populism because um, populists believe in a dichotomous world where there's good and bad and uh, the true will of the people uh, and they're also very much opposing uh, the restrictions on the majority will um, the idea that there's an absolute will of the majority and it shouldn't be restrained by minority rights protection or in institutional safeguards. And that's why we see populists attacking the judiciary, for example, which is the institution which really protects um, the rule of law and with it, the right of minorities, I mean, and I mean, all kinds of minority, from political to sexual to uh, national minorities to be protected. Um, so I think there's a strong link between authoritarianism and populism. And of course, In that sense, the instincts are authoritarian, and so in that sense, any opportunity given will be used to uh, reinforce authoritarian rule, either opportunistically or out of conviction. And in these moments, first of all, you can uh, gather great popular consent. Governments, uh, usually executives, soar in popularity moments of crisis. Um, they are easy to justify and uh, you know we've seen in uh, many countries that opposition who is critical is called you know allies of the virus pro-corona opposition we've heard these phrases Um, so the suggestion that the opposition by being critical of certain measures is siding with the enemy and that enemy is the disease so uh, it's very hard uh, to criticize it, it's easy to shut down critical voices. And of course, on an international level, the attention is elsewhere. And if France does it, if the United States do it, uh, if uh, liberal democracies take such measures uh, or even similar measures, it's very easy for autocrats to justify uh, the erosion of these freedoms um, by pointing out to, you know, let's say, well-established democracies. So
0: yeah, let's talk about the um the situation in Hungary, because I think it's a good kind of textbook example of um, of authoritarian regimes or leaders kind of been benefiting from from the state of emergency and taking more control. What is happening there, and obviously he's using this moment because no one in within NATO or the European Union is really looking at it because everybody is focused on their own country and population. So what what has uh, Viktor Orban been doing there?
1: Well Viktor Orban's party has passed a law a few days ago which basically declares a state of emergency which allows the government to act um, to suspend existing laws um, without the consent of parliament. It allows to rule without parliament uh, for an indefinite period so there isn't a sunset clause built into the law it can be suspended only with the will of the government itself. So in a certain way, the government checks itself, no longer checked by parliament. And also the law has been passed with a two-third majority, so it's very difficult to change back. So um, in that sense, it, it protects, it locks in, in a certain way, the current government. And so in a certain it. it basically reduces the uh, checks and balances to an absolute minimum and gives the the government great hand in uh, imposing whatever decisions it wants to do. And it has, for example, already subsequently taken decision on um, rights of sexual minorities, which have really absolutely nothing to do with with the crisis. So I think we can see that the government has been using this as a, as a pretext for further control rather than just dealing, you know, with the epidemic epidemic uh, measures. Now, this is not a full surprise the government of uh, viktor orban in hungary has been eroding democratic checks and balances for a decade now they came to power exactly 10 years ago and they've been they've passed a new constitution they've passed a whole set of so-called cardinal laws which are passed with a large constitutional majority which uh, they've changed the electoral system so many uh, observers have noted that hungary is already for a number of years no longer uh, a democracy freedom house declares it partly free uh, varieties of democracies, are a kind of measure of democracies around the world, has also recently come out saying that uh, Hungary is no longer a, a kind of full democratic system. Many studies, again, by by, by scholars of democracy, come to the same conclusion that's, that Hungary is no longer um, a democratic country in the sense of a democratic country where there is the ability to change government through free and fair elections. This is no longer given. Um, the media is controlled. So we have a very, very Oppressive environment and, uh, and a government which has used this particular opportunity in a certain way to further consolidate its power, um, especially this comes uh, of course, as we discussed earlier, because it can it can get away with it, but also because opposition is there, and you know not long ago um, it lost the capital of Budapest uh, to the opposition, um, so the opposition is, can organize itself it 's very very difficult, it's certainly not a free and fair environment. But um, it's certainly useful at this moment for the government to reassert itself when there's more criticism than there has been uh, for a decade of its rule.
0: Have you seen other countries in Europe go along the same route? I don't know. what about hmm. What's happening in Poland, for example? Do you know a bit more about that?
1: I mean, in Poland, we haven't seen uh, the same kind of uh, laws. Um, what we've seen in Poland, and what I think has been noted as, as worrying, uh, is that uh, the government is planning to go ahead with its with presidential elections uh, okay. planned for May. Um, now, that seems both from a public health perspective highly irresponsible, but also favours the incumbent because in these circumstances you cannot have um, electoral campaigns. I mean, you can't. Go and organize a rally. You can't, uh, uh, you know, talk to your supporters in the way in which uh, elections are normally contested. So it favors the incumbent. In these circumstances, elections always favor the one who holds power. Partly because there is moments of crisis are kind of rallying around the flag, around the leader phenomena, but also because he's the only one who can campaign by virtue of being the president. Um, so we see there also in a different way uh, an abuse. Um, and we have other countries in Europe as well. In Serbia, we have a state of emergency, which is quite restrictive. Um, also, there we've had uh, uh, regulations on public information which led to the arrest of a journalist who was criticizing healthcare provision. Um, so, this was not spreading fake news in the sense of spreading uh, rumors or dubious uh, explanations of the spread of the disease, but rather uh, criticizing the public health response, which certainly is something which should never be covered by uh, any kind of restrictions because it's exactly that which uh, makes situation worse rather than better. She was released uh, and the government promised to uh, drop this restrictive measures, but it shows you that governments are also testing about how far they can go. Uh, and in Serbia, we have, for example, very strict curfew. Uh, elderly people above 65 are not allowed to leave the house at all, except for a very small time slot in the morning. These kind of measures really seem uh, disproportionate in many ways. Um, and we have also similar kind of disproportionate measures uh, in Albania, um, in Montenegro, the government has published publicly made available the names of individuals who are supposed to be self-quarantined because they are considered to be coming from a, uh, an area of particular threat. The government justified it by saying um, kind of social uh, coercion will work better than policing because we don't have the police to keep a check on everybody. But it seems very problematic to list publicly the name and address of individuals who are supposed to be quarantined. So We see governments across the continent taking these measures, which shouldn't extend beyond what we consider to be proportional uh, with uh, the the interest of the public. And and that's, I think, what what is worrying. Again, uh, it's too early to say exactly how all of this will will pan out. But I think we we do see more than one country where the the response of the government seems to be... um, going a bit beyond what might be strictly really uh, necessary and might really curtail civil liberties mm. to a degree, which is worrying.
0: Yeah. And, um we've seen a lot of, I mean, you're a professor of nationalism and um, we've seen that a lot, um, in Europe, um, over the past few years, we've heard a lot of anti-immigrant, um, sentiment xenophobic xenophobic speech and perhaps a rise of anti-semitism as well are these perhaps more extreme let's say extreme right movements for example using this moment to call for even more you know nationalism and less and perhaps is, is eurocepticism growing right now as well
1: i mean it's it's certainly the hope of the far right that uh, this will be their moment nigel farage in an early editorial um, a month ago wrote that we're all nationalists now now i wouldn't agree with him but uh, certainly um, it's Well, on one side, the far right populists have lost at first their topics uh, because nobody cares about migrants, particularly now. Um, You know, that also is to the disadvantage of migrants, there are tens of thousands of migrants stranded in Greece uh, in a very precarious situation, and they're not getting the help they should. Um, They often don't have water, and certainly not the facilities to keep uh, the level of hygiene to be able to prevent the spread of disease. So in a certain way, you can't social distance if you live in a refugee camp. Um, And nobody cares about that because this is not on the agenda. But of course, this also means that for populist far-right, Uh, parties, you can't really talk about migration at the moment. But again, I think they're trying to capture this issue for that and link migration um, and border closures um, uh, with with the disease. And it's a matter of whether they will succeed or not. I mean, in many ways, uh, I think in the European Union, decision makers have realized that if they don't show, not just bring aid, and we've seen this now that, for example, patients have been flown from French hospitals to German hospitals, where their capacities, or uh, Austrian hospitals. So there is cross-border transfer of patients, medical supply, I mean, there's been more medical supplies given across the European Union than from China, although the Chinese assistance has been much much better publicized. Uh, The EU has, in a certain way, the countries have to be better at doing the PR, not to lose the PR war. I mean, provide the assistance, but uh, not be good at selling it. I mean, this has been generally a problem often. But I think there's a realization that this has to be done. And we saw this, for example, in Serbia, uh, where um, China was quick to provide some um, assistance and the Serbian president publicly thanked China and called China a big brother, while at the same time saying the European solidarity is a fairy tale. Since then, there's been a lot more assistance from the European Union, higher in number volume than from China, uh, but it's gotten a lot less attention. So um, it's to some degree not about the reality. I mean, of course, there's much which is left to be left to be desired with when it comes to solidarity in Europe um, and elsewhere. But I think there is more solidarity there than is visible. Uh, and one has to be careful not to give the far right nationalists uh, too much ground on that and let them be the ones who interpret what is going on. I mean, I would hold against it and say that, in fact, there is a lot of evidence of solidarity. A lot of people were helping each other out across national boundaries. Sure. And one shouldn't one shouldn't uh, believe the nationalists that that we are all now following their tracks.
0: Yeah, we've seen a real also charming offensive from China in, in Italy, you know, kind of providing humanitarian aid, as they say. And I think you're right. I think that Europe should obviously do a better PR campaign, but we've seen China doing this this propaganda uh, all, all across the globe in order to kind of save its reputation after it was at the origin of kind of this crisis and of, you know, it denied the... The virus for kind of quite a long time and now it's uh, even it's Europe it's doing it's you know we kind of propaganda or a PR campaign,
1: as you say. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this is, but it risks also backfiring. I mean, I think what we see is that some of this PR is a bit too crude. I mean, sometimes you know, there's been issues in recent days when some of the, some of the uh, medical supplies provided by China were in fact purchased in the European Union right. while China tried to sell it as a, as a humanitarian donation. And that kind of disinformation is really something which can be debunked fairly easily. And there's a risk that, you know, that I mean, there's risk for china that if it does it too' uh, in a certain way too crudely that it will backfire there's also been lots of reports in the across EU countries uh, where some of these supplies have been received that they were faulty and of low quality so that they couldn't mm-hmm. be used so um, again I, I think this might have been an early propaganda victory for China but whether the long term really convinces people that China is uh, is a friend who really can offer uh, assistance I'm not convinced about that I'm quite doubtful and i'm but it's also worrying in, 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 a, in a certain way that um, uh, we had this in Hungary, for example, one of the opposition MPs criticizing Orbán's politics said, you know, help comes from Europe and the virus comes from China. Um, uh, again, it's also dangerous to rephrase um, the disease and also the whole uh, the whole talk about it as, you know, the China, Chinese virus and uh and talking about this global antagonism. So so, I mean, yes, we need European solidarity, we need to be careful that some of the Chinese engagement is propaganda, but at the same time, the response shouldn't be to say, you know, China is the problem and uh, Europeans or Americans for themselves. So in a certain way, we also have to not throw kind of global solidarity, global cooperation, overboard in all of that because, uh, you know, China certainly mishandled a lot of the early parts of this pandemic uh, and it's an authoritarian state, but it's also, you know, it also shouldn't be everything uh, wholesale dismissed about it so that we're getting into a new phase of kind of uh, a cold war where, you know, uh, mm-hmm. we we're full of anti-Chinese stereotypes and, and biases
0: yeah and that's one of the goal of this series as well is to show that there is a lot of propaganda out there a lot of misinformation and nobody is is you know same as happening in the, in the united states where they're pointing at china as as you know the culprit like even state leaders what's the state of misinformation and disinformation in europe because here uh, at least in in North America, there's been quite a lot, and it takes a long, long time to debunk everything that can be found online. What what what's what's it like in Europe?
1: I think we're also seeing, of course, a lot of you know rumors spreading. I mean, it's 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 a classic phenomenon in times of uncertainty and great anxiety. Uh, people are looking for information, and often are not sufficiently critical. And then this is compounded by, of course, the use of social media. Uh, you know, and to some degree, when we're locked in uh, inside, uh, we're even less in a certain way losing maybe our critical uh, capacity. Um, so, so yes, of course, we have a lot of that everywhere. Uh, some of it is just because people, you know, all kinds of people spread all kinds of rubbish. Um, uh, some of it is, of course, deliberate targeting. I think Russia and China are two countries which have been engaging, I think Russia even more than China, in deliberate okay. misinformation in Europe. We, we know many uh, efforts uh, when it comes to brexit to elections and elsewhere uh, channels like Sputnik uh, and so on which really share misinformation uh, with a deliberate political agenda and we see oh. this in Europe just like we do in North America so again I think my hope is that when the kind of fog uh, the, the fogs of uncertainty lift a little bit uh, that this will be uh, become a lot clearer but it is I think the problem is as you rightly say that a big story of, uh, you know, there was a story, for example, of uh, masks uh, destined for Italy, which were held at the Czech Republic. And it's it, at first was presented as the Czech Republic confiscating masks held uh, masks destined by humanitarian aid from China to Italy. But then it turned out to be a much more complicated story where these were purchased and sold twice with dubious middlemen. And there was all kinds of um, much more complicated story, which is not a nice story of Europeans are fighting against one another, despite Chinese help, but rather than this was a story of, of you know, illegal uh, business, um, dubious practices, corruption, and so on, which is a lot harder to disentangle. It requires serious journalism. Um, and I think this will re- requires more time than the quick story. So, yes, I think a lot of the, lot of the information we got at first and which were easily and widely shared will turn out to be not quite as true as they, they seemed at first. Um, so, so I think one has to just you know, give, a, give it some time. And I think that the one good thing is certainly that uh, public information, you know, especially in Europe, we have a lot of public broadcasters uh, which are doing their job. And I think what we see is the role of the, you know, of, of uh, critical journalism, which is done also through through public broadcasters, which is able to counteract some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so in that sense, I think that um, the debunking of myths in a certain way is easier to some degree, because there's a kind of consensus of the mainstream political parties and the society to do so. And the kind of expert driven advice uh, gives, has greater space in it um, than it does when it comes to other issues.
0: Yeah, it's the same here in in Canada, actually, people have been turning more to the more traditional long existing um, media for information. And I think, you know, I mean, that's the case in Canada, I'm not sure what it is like uh, south of the border. But perhaps to finish on a more kind of positive news, have you Do you have some example of good European collaboration? I know there's been a bit, you were saying there's been a bit more in the the recent days.
1: Well, I think the the collaboration is certainly happening in the level of provision for, for patients in need of urgent care. I mean, I think this is something where we see now an increasing network of countries helping each other out uh, with providing um, medical assistance to, to patients when hospital capacities, especially intensive care capacities, are exhausted in one country that patients are flown to another country. Um, so, so this has quite, become quite widespread, especially from Italy and France, where there's you know, been a really crisis of uh, local public health systems. I mean, especially, it's been particularly pronounced in Eastern France, it's on the border with Germany, and then those patients were taken to, to just across the border to Germany or to Luxembourg. Um, or to switzerland so so i think this kind of cooperation and this is you know really saves lives because what Mm. we find is that the death rate is the highest in places where the public health system is overwhelmed by the by cases so there is this is going on i mean of course the larger question where solidarity is more difficult is when it comes to the long-term financial uh, burden sharing but on the level of now, the kind of care for patients, we we see a lot of that, a lot of also symbolic acts of, you know, so sympathy, of expressing solidarity with Italy, which is a particularly difficult situation. So we see that we, I think we see that quite clearly. Um, so so I, I find that, you know, the, the, the kind of citizens' sympathy and the state's response, it takes a while to get off the ground. I mean, there's logistical reasons, there's the panic at first, but I think as things kind of... I mean, I don't say want to say normalized, but as, as as there's a, a mechanism develop over time of how to handle it, it gets easier to to help out one another, and I do I do see it as something which is kind of working. And some of those help is offered by in Germany. Some individual states have been offering it, so it's not just at the national level, the government level. Um, so you know, it happens at all at all at all levels um, that that we see the solidarity um, and. In that sense, I mean, that wouldn't have happened without the European Union. So a lot of these kind of cooperation is not organised by the EU as an institution, but it's within that framework of, of 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 people who are used to each other, are used to helping each other, who, where there are communication networks and channels where this is where this is taking place. So in that sense, I mean, that gives me a sense of also of optimism that you know, with all the difficulties and all the the kind of challenges to the existing systems, um, there's also an opportunity to, to demonstrate that, you know, that people help each other irrespective of their citizenship and nationality, and in a certain way debunk the claims of the nationals to claim that everybody's not following their line. I don't think that's true, and I think there's plenty of evidence for that.
0: Thank you so much, Professor Bieber, for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you.